0: I've been spending a lot of time uh, reflecting on on our time together over these last nearly 15 years, and um, and have had a litany of of, of feelings of of, of uh, running the gamut from great joy to sorrow to sadness to relief to all kinds of things. But um, one thing I will be saying over and over and over again is that I really believe that great things are ahead for the chapel under God's leadership with Charla's great gifts as incoming senior pastor with an extraordinary, incredibly gifted staff uh, with super volunteers and each one of you. And with that in mind, though, I've really been reflecting upon uh, this chapter in my life as it concludes, and um, it's during this time that I was remembering, I don't know, 30 years ago, I I sat my parents down and, and turned on a videotape camera And I asked them for two hours all kinds of questions. And uh, one of the questions I asked my parents was, what do you want me to remember uh, from you the most? And they answered the question in a very full way, which I won't get into, but I do realize how much I miss them because they've been gone a while now. But as I thought about asking them that question, I thought about the chapel and thought about what I pray that you and I most remember about our time here together. But said another way, what are the lessons about our faith that I hope you and I keep front and center in the years ahead, wherever we find ourselves? And while there are many things I hope we remember now and in the future, wherever we are, I decided that I really wanted to focus on five. And they are grace, forgiveness, faith, hope, and love. Several weeks ago, you remember I preached about grace and the Reverend Will Campbell's great saying, we're all scoundrels and Jesus loves us anyway, and preached about grace and how that is central to our faith. Two weeks ago, I spoke about the the centrality of of forgiveness and that forgiveness is part of what is at the core of our walk with Jesus. And this week, I want to turn to the topic of faith Although with that picture up, I keep thinking of Alfred Hitchcock. But, um, um, but this week, I want to, <laughs> although they weren't crows, they were, what were they? They were seagulls. I think w- they were, in, H- in Hitchcock's movie, what were they? They were seabirds of some sort. I don't know how it went off on that tangent. But anyway, uh, this week, I want to turn to faith. And then next week, I'm going to talk about hope. And then my final week, can you guess what I'm going to talk about? There you go, love. I'll be talking about love two weeks from now. But for today, let's jump into the topic of faith. Faith, at its core, is really about trust. And while there are very, very few things in life that I believe are black and white in our faith journey, I believe that there's something that God wants each of us to treat as black and white. And that is that God invites us and wants us to trust God completely and regardless. You know, trust is a funny thing I've learned over the years. When a person says, I kind of trust you, what they're really saying is, I don't trust you at all. And I believe in general we either trust or we don't trust. And that God's hope for us in the midst of it all is that we will trust God. Although I just said this, I need to be very clear that Trusting God can be excruciatingly difficult at times, especially when things turn south or troubling things happen. Despite this and our very real humanness, God wants us to trust God, however hard that is. Not kind of trust, not somewhat trust, not it depends if I will trust, not when I get through this, then I will trust, but simply to trust. And to trust that God has us covered and that when it is all said and done, when it's all said and done, that things will be okay, more than okay, because God said so. Well, is this kind of trust hard? You bet. And I would say in my own life journey that sometimes it is the hardest thing imaginable. For example, I know what grief does to trust especially when the source of grief is due to something that in no way should ever, ever happen. And I have felt on many occasions that I needed to tell God where to stick it because things seemed so unfair. But because of these kinds of things, I've discovered over time that I am so grateful that we have a God that wants us to bring God everything, our distrust, our anger, Our frustration, our sadness, our grief, that God wants us to bring us everything. And while trusting God means we believe God has it all covered and that God knows what God is doing, I must say there are a few things that trusting God is not about. Trust is never about denying our pain, trust does not mean we deny reality when something is terrible. Trust does not mean we just explain things away or just look on the bright side of things or ignore what is wrong. Trust does not mean we sit idly by and and let bad things happen that we can actually do something about. Trust does not mean we walk away from our fundamental obligation to be God's partner in confronting all the evil around us. Trust in God is... Something, however, that we can, is trust in God is not something, however, that we can get on our own, as I believe that trust is something that comes by working with God as trust comes from God, sometimes through a very long and arduous process. C.S. Lewis long ago wrote this, in essence, and it's a saying that really changed my faith life because it helped me turn to where I needed to turn when it comes to trust. C.S. Lewis, in essence, wrote, the fundamental turning point in my life of faith came when I said to God, if you want me to trust you, I can't do it. You have got to give it to me. And that saying is a saying that changed my life again when it comes to trusting God. C.S. Lewis realized that trust was not something he he could get on his own that it had to come from the source, from God himself. Trust doesn't mean we don't have questions, tough questions, unanswerable questions. Trust doesn't mean we don't doubt sometimes. Trust and doubt can go hand in hand. And if you look at stories in Scripture, trust often wavers and comes and goes more often than not. And if we trust God, it doesn't mean that we have it all down or better than those who are struggling mildly with trust. Trust doesn't mean we don't feel deep pain and hurt. And finally, one thing I want to say is that we don't have to be in a place of trust to be part of a community like the chapel. Trust is not an admission card. In fact, struggling with trust immediately gets you in the door of this place. That's what the chapel is about. Our reading today is from the first book of Kings. It's a very ancient story. And in it, we run into an interesting character named Elijah. In scripture, we, we learn that he was a kind of a hairy fellow. And I've always iman- imagined Elijah look like somebody at a biker bar. He was rough, but he was faithful. Anyway, when Elijah was around, the land of Israel was divided into two parts. The north, Israel. The south, Judah. And Elijah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. And one day Elijah went to see the king, a fellow named Ahab. We're told in scripture that Ahab was a very bad dude. He did a lot of evil things. And on top of that, he was married to a deceitful, cruel, witch of a woman named Jezebel. Anyway, Elijah told Ahab that his way of doing things was way off base and God was mad at him. And that as a result, God would cause a terrible drought to happen, which is exactly what did happen. And after Elijah shares the news with the king, God tells Elijah to flee and get out of town and head out into the wilderness and hang out along a stream where scavenger birds, ravens, will bring him food and water. The raven disappeared. There it is. They are kind of nasty creatures, aren't they? Well, Elijah does this, and for a while things are okay, but eventually the drought dries up the stream that was providing Elijah water. And God then tells Elijah to travel to a town named Zarephath, where he will find a widow who will feed him. So Elijah goes to Zarephath, he finds the widow, he asks her for some food, and she replies just when he gets there that she was in the midst of making their last supper because they were out of food and dying of starvation. Elijah tells her not to be afraid and to use what little she has left to make some food. Elijah then says to her that her food will not run out and that there will be food in abundance until the drought ends. Well, for some time, things are fine. They're eating plenty, there's plenty of water, but one day the widow's son becomes sick and dies. The woman screams out in grief, what have you done to me, man of God? Well, Elijah immediately takes her son, lays the son's body down and stretches out upon him three, three times. He prays to God and the son is brought back to life. And the woman says, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord speaks through you. So let's just for a few moments dig into this story just a little bit. When the story begins, Elijah is in real trouble. He's hiding out to avoid King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. He's by himself. He's in the wilderness. He's living on the edge. Things are really tough. But God does what God says he will do, and ravens feed Elijah. He uses something very unlikely to feed Elijah, a raven. Well, after things dry up due to the ongoing drought, recall that God tells Elijah to go to a place called Zarephath. It's important to know that Jews at the time hated Zarephath. They did not like the people that lived in Zarephath because they worshipped everything but God. And on top of that, Elijah is told to go to a widow who was a Syrophoenician. Syrophoenicians were also not liked by Jews. And a widow had no right and no power in those days. So in the story, God sends Elijah to an unlikely place in an unlikely circumstance to an unlikely person to help him. And it is absurd that God sends Elijah to a widow ask her for a very little last bit of food. Well, through Elijah and his words, the widow is asked by God to care for a man, a very unlikely thing for a widow to be asked to do. She is asked to give him the last bit of food. Again, ridiculous. She is asked to help Elijah out, a Jew. Again, totally absurd. If you look at this story throughout it, there's the absurd, the unlikely, the ridiculous, the unexpected, the out-of-the-box, the the surprising, and the culturally unacceptable. All these themes are running throughout the story. Yet they characterize the avenues through which God brings about not only care for Elijah, but also healing, restoration, and new beginnings for the widow and her son. This story, this ancient story, has a lot to say to you and me about faith and trust. On the most surface level, the story is one of so many in Scripture that there is reason to have hope and that we can receive healing and expect to receive healing through God. That God brings about new beginnings even if sometimes it takes a long, 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 long time for that to happen. Look at the story. The woman loses her husband. She's destitute. She's a widow. The woman has a son. They nearly starve to death over a long period of time. She experiences terrible grief. Then her son dies. And after all of these events, from things going from bad to worse to horrible, it is then that finally healing and new beginnings happen. And it's through this story I believe that you and I are encouraged to keep hope and keep trusting God, even when things are terrible for a sustained period of time. Few things can be harder to do or be more arduous. But a theme from beginning to end of Scripture is trust God even when things are hard for sustained periods of time, that all will be well when all is said and done. I love what Dallas Willard writes about an aspect of why we should trust God. Dallas Willard wrote, wrote, Once we have grasped our situation in God's world, the startling disregard Jesus and the New Testament writers have for death suddenly makes sense. We who love and are loved by God are not allowed to cease to exist because we are God's treasures. God delights in us and holds on to us. He is prepared for us an individualized work in God's vast universe. Anyone who realizes that reality is God's and has seen a little bit of what God has already done understands that paradise is not a problem at all. So as we think of our life and make plans for it, we should not be anticipating going through some terrible event called death to be avoided at all costs even though it can't be avoided. Immersed in Christ, we may be sure that our life, yes, that familiar one we're each so well acquainted with, will never stop. We should anticipate what we will be doing 300 or 1,000 or 10,000 years from now in this marvelous universe. We are never ceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in the full world of God. Dallas is writing about trusting God and the reason why. The message here is not if something does not get better, don't worry about it because all will be well when we die. That's not Dallas' message. The message is when something in life does not get better, we can still trust God in the midst of all because God is in charge and we can trust even when something hurts like hell or does not make any sense at all because when it's all said and done, all will be well. So we can trust God, we can let go of angst and worry and trying to control things. We can live today, we can live for today and in today. But there's one last thing I just want to touch on briefly about this story. Remember in the story, God acted through unusual means, including the absurd, the unlikely, the ridiculous, the unexpected, the the out-of-the-box, the surprising, and the culturally unacceptable. I think there's something for us to pay attention to. I wonder, and I wonder if there have been moments in my life and in your lives in which something tough or difficult was going on and God worked through the situation in unusual, unexpected, or even surprising ways we did not anticipate or even see at first. I wonder if there may be something going on now in which God may be acting or wanting to act through unexpected, unusual, and surprising ways that God has asked you to see. I wonder if when we're going through something, God asks us to keep our eyes open for God acting in ways we never thought of before. I wonder if in part this story tells us that when we need help, God invites us to be open to people that come our way that we might not normally turn to. Even people that we've typically thought of as outside of our box. Who might be in our orbit right now we would never consider God could be using to help us? Could it be the neighbor we struggle with? The person we find offensive? The friend that drives us nuts because of her political views? The couple we're struggling with accepting? Or the person who just won't stop talking? Might this story in part be an invitation for us to be open to the unexpected and unlikely people around us as people through whom God is wanting to bring us healing, restoration, or a new beginning of some kind? But when it's all said and done, this story of Elijah and so many more throughout Scripture invite us to trust God with all that we are no matter what, regardless, despite it all, and to turn to God and to ask God to help us with that kind of trust, to remember the words of C.S. Lewis, God, I can't get there on my own. I need you to give me the trust that you invite me to have this day. And so for a few moments, I invite us to some silent prayer and praying to God and chatting with God and listening to God when it comes to where we are in our journey of faith and trust.